I hope that you're excited in the reading of the Word, that there was more than just one phrase read this week, which indicates we're going to make some more progress this week, perhaps, than we did last. We read all of 1 through 5, and we will indeed be covering this morning verses 1 through 5. Last week, as we looked at, if you were able to be with us, we looked at the national tragedy or the national crisis of Israel. Already that kind of moves me away from really what I want to say, because I think we tend to think of Israel again, which is uh, perhaps a dead horse that I'm beating, yet I will continue to beat it until it is dust. That is that our inclinations yet again unfortunately, oftentimes trained through preaching and through teaching, is to think of Israel as a nation prior to nation being a church. That is, as we think of Israel and we read the Old Testament text of Scripture, we are to think of them as the people of God. Not simply people deeply invested in national geopolitical strategy or as subduing their enemies in a physical external sense. They are a church. It is the church of the Old Covenant. So again, last week we looked at the church in tragedy. That is what we discovered throughout the text of Scripture. Looking in a brief survey of the book of Judges, And Joshua, we notice the slow but sure canonization of God's people. That was not restricted to one era. It is the challenge facing God's people in every era of redemptive history, including our own. And again, the book of Revelation refers not to Canaan, which is the church in these last days' challenge, but it refers to the language of Babylon. As I said, the red hot chili peppers call it Californication. Either way, it is a challenge that God's people have faced in every era of redemptive history. In the days when the judges ruled is the opening comment in Ruth 1.1. And we find out is evidence in searching of what that means, that in the days when the judges judged, What does that mean? We find out that the church of Christ was spiritually bankrupt. By way of review, I won't re-preach it, but by way of review, I highlight four things that we saw distinctively about the canonization of God's people. That is, the church of God being spiritually bankrupt through the influence of those around them. And that is number one. The era of conquest that the book of Judges opens with is to be one of foreign fighting. By the time we work through the cycle of the Judges, we find Israel to be in civil war. Fighting one with another. That was not the command. Canaanization has set it in. Number two. The call to obedience that was clear for covenantal renewal at the end of the book of Joshua, which then leads us into the book of Judges. And my whole point for this, for you who were not with us last week, is the book of Ruth takes place, again, 
in this era of redemptive history. So take the end of Joshua and go into the book of Judges. And at the end of Joshua, there is a call for obedience and covenantal renewal as they move forward in conquest. By the second chapter, or really the end of uh, the first chapter of the book of Judges, we find that there is a rejection of God as their Lord. Not only a rejection of God, but an adherence and a favor of foreign gods in his place. It doesn't take long for us and our fickle flesh to bear out the simplicity of our decision in one moment, a moment of courage perhaps overstated, and then simply one thing can beset us to where we just default to some totally different system and confession. How weak and fragile our faith indeed often is. We find that Israel within one chapter, end of one into two, has turned their back on God in favor of foreign gods. Number three, the civil use of the law of Moses. That which is to conduct business, keep order within the people of God is replaced with open lawlessness. Not kind of, sort of, hidden somewhere or in the dark places certain injustices are occurring, but it is an exchange of God's order for no order. They would rather have lawlessness, civil fighting, and bowing down to foreign gods. Number four. And this is kind of hitting the climax in the book of Judges where things will guide us from Judges into 1 Samuel. And so you have the young Samuel emerging at the beginning of of the book of Samuel, and you have this priest who is kind of functioning, or the priests of Israel in the book of Judges, kind of functioning as a foil, as it were, to prepare us for the young man Samuel at the beginning of the book of Samuel. So we see highlighted at the end of Judges the cultic chaos that is set in the place of Israel. Israel's hitting rock bottom because the priests, those who are to guard proper worship in Israel, are in outright apostasy. This is often, unfortunately, the case within modern evangelicalism or Protestantism as well. The elders, those who serve Christ's church, are stewards of proper worship and order within the place of public worship of the church of Christ. And yet, most recent, perhaps you have seen, or maybe not, and maybe it's just me who's seen this and I make too much of it for your sake, however, I would note, one uh, who was at one time a leading evangelical pastor, I guess, and then, and, and then now post-evangelical, and now I think perhaps post-belief, made this statement, and this is the idea, this is what we're seeing within Israel, and it happens in every era of redemptive history. One post, I don't don't know what he is now, but his comment was simply this, with a, a, a number of followers, that as long as the church defends its positions, by appealing to documents that are 2,000 years old. 
they will remain to be irrelevant. So it is, just like in Old Covenant, the people of God, Israel, where elders or priests, those who are entrusted with guarding proper worship, stand in places of opposition openly to God and lead the people down pathways of apostasy. In every practical sense, the people of God had hit rock bottom. That's kind of a brief summary of the book of Judges. And I draw your attention to consider in such a history, one perhaps that you have read, as we studied together last week, in such a history, what are we to make of it? Right now, if I were to apply it to you, apply it to myself, what do we take away from it? So we're studying the history of the church. And we're drawing out the conclusions that are evidenced in the text of Scripture referring to the church. Here we are, gathered as the church. And how do we apply? What do we make of that history for our point in time? I would suggest to you that the thing that stands out about the life of the church, collective and together, collectively and individually, is humility. Humility in a way in which we recognize, if anything, and here in my notes I have anything circled. That is, uh, I was supposed to emphasize to you the term anything. If anything, I think that matches the tone of my highlight, anything positive is ever accomplished in the church. It is the work of God alone. If anything in our individual lives is accomplished for grace and glory, it is to the work of God alone. It is not to us be the glory. We are not saving our own skin. It is the work of of a sovereign and loving God when anything is rightfully accomplished in our own lives and collectively in the life of the church. Human leaders in the Old Covenant and in the New, human leaders have a profound propensity to disappoint. Each of us do, whether in the family, as fathers, as husbands, as elders in ministry, as employees, as co-workers, as church members. We all share feet of clay. Human leaders, each of us, have a profound propensity to disappoint and, unfortunately, to exploit the church. For our own purposes. So I say again. The point of such a tattered history. In our reading of it at this moment. Is to highlight unto each of us. A place of humility. In our lives. And in that humility. 
that anything that is indeed rightfully ordered and accomplished, owning it solely to the work of God's grace, what confidence then does the church have in moments right now? In moments like these, what confidence? If it is true that human leaders, as seemingly shown throughout the text of Scripture, have a profound propensity to disappoint and even to exploit the church for their own purposes, what confidence do we have? As church members, as fathers, as husbands, what confidence do we have knowing our own propensity? It is the promise of Matthew 16, 18. It is where Christ says, I will build my church. That is our confidence. That if anything positive is ever accomplished, and our confidence is much to the glory of God is accomplished in the church, and it is the work of God, for Christ did promise he would build his church. He promised and he has built his church throughout the old covenant of which we will see as we draw our attention to Ruth. He is building his church in these last days and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therein lies our confidence in the promise of Christ to build his church. Thankfully, it isn't our confidence is not resting upon elders. It isn't resting upon church members. It isn't resting upon the fathers or the husbands in their perfect execution of those tasks. Our confidence rests in the covenant of Christ that he will build his church. So we are here to worship him as the church that is being built. Now, The book of Ruth, as we move toward our time this morning in the book of Ruth, it opens up from this history or within the history of the scope of when the judges ruled with an eye toward God's response toward these very faithless, disobedient, and brutal days. Look with me in the text of God's response of what we know his response to be to this era of redemptive history of the judges. Ruth 1 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, right there, we note that this famine is not coincidental. Neither is it meant to be read as a coincidence as the narrator leads us through the story of Ruth from tragedy unto triumph. The tragedy, indeed, is self inflicted. God has caused this famine in the land, due to the days when the judges ruled. It is a cause and effect relationship of God's providence. How do we know so? Turn with me, if you would, if you have your text of Scripture, just back a ways to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 22 through 24, will give us clarity regarding how this is to be read as God's response to the period of the judges. Deuteronomy 28, 22 through 24. Verse 22. The Lord will strike you with wasting. Here uh, Moses is giving the blessings and the curses of the covenant to the people of Israel. 
So, again, it's about the content of the covenant and how they respond to the content of the covenant in the land that they are taking possession of. Here we have in the book of Judges them in this land. We noted already their behavior, and now what are we to expect in response to their behavior? Well, let's go back to the content of the covenant curse, and we'll find out, is it shocking that there's a famine in the land? Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with the blight of the uh, and with blight and with mildew, they shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The language here upon Israel for forsaking the covenant that God has made with them through their fathers is a response of famine. We'll draw out the reason why. Why choose famine? What is to be perceived in the use of famine as a curse upon Israel for disobedience? But if you were to move from here where the covenant curses are given to Israel, this is what you are to rightfully expect if you disregard the covenant. In the days when the judges ruled, they're disregarding the covenant. No surprise then we open up in that context to find out the land is barren. There is a famine. And we are rightful to conclude that there is a cause and effect relationship taking place with their behavior. It isn't only here that we read of the Lord using famine as an instrument of discipline. If we return to Haggai 1, I noticed uh, Sunday night we're going through, as uh, Pastor Dan mentioned, the minor prophets. We were looking at Haggai chapter 1 um, last week, and I note for you verses 10 and 11. uh, In fact, I think I can read it for you, actually. Um, uh, Chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I don't know how quick we'd all make it to Haggai together. Let me therefore shortcut and read for you verse 10 and 11. Therefore the heavens above, uh, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth was withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So you see there, again, a direct reference to God calling forth as sanctions for the covenant, a drought upon the land. That is, God's response to Israel's rejection throughout the days of the judges. We have our own pathway. We're not obeying your covenant brings the sanctions from God with a people who oppress them and a famine that withers their grain. Now, again, what is the connection? Why a famine? And while we can't give certain of every indication of why God causes certain covenantal curses, what fully they are to signify and mean, it is somewhat straightforward for us to be able to recognize how does a famine upon the land instruct Israel as a covenant-breaking community? How does that speak to them to see a barren wasteland that was promised to be full 
of luxury? I would submit to you the answer is this, as a famine does speak to the people of God throughout the Old Covenant as witnessed also, again, in Haggai. And it is this, God brings a physical drought to the people of God that mirrors their spiritual drought. Both Israel and the land, of which are to be plentiful and rich, suffer together. God causes the land to cry out, to be burdened, and Israel also in it to be burdened, though that was a place of presence and goodness. And such a drought speaks to the Israelite by faith. It manifests to him before his own face a physical drought that mirrors his own spiritual drought. Is this unique? Again, as we study the Old Testament text, we witness it isn't unique how God indeed works with Israel as the church of the Old Covenant. We find he works this way with each and every one of us as well. We find out as we study together the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, it speaks of God's fatherly discipline. Yet we find out that God's fatherly discipline, and we will find out with the book of Ruth, is pregnant, is full of promise. Again, as God deals with his people, it isn't motivated by retribution, but indeed it is a promotion of promise. It guides, it directs, it drives us. Back unto the Father. As Israel will witness drought, they will be driven on to fullness. So it is with our Father, the promise of Hebrews 12 is that by this very fatherly discipline that we experience in our lives, in providence, in heavy-handed ways, in dark and difficult challenges we all face, there is promise that because of this difficulty, we will come to share in his holiness. This process cannot be shortcut and it cannot be skipped, either in the old covenant or in the new. It is God's commitment to his purposes in his people. So again, the tragedy of the story is just beginning. It'll get worse before it gets better. And notice how this tragedy is told us through the story of this one family. I'll read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll come back and we'll notice how this difficult day of discipline upon Israel gets worse before it gets better. There was a famine in the land. Now we know that the Lord has struck the land with, with, with famine. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. I want to stop there at the end of verse 2 to come back and piece together this introduction of the story. 
of how the story of God's people here is being told through dark irony. It is a masterful piece of literature giving us an introduction to a wonderful story. But there are two things that set up for us to grasp the tragedy that is going to develop in this very short narrative. Those two pieces are number one, if you notice there in verse one, the direction of the narrative or the direction of the traveler is significant. I'll give it away next week if you return. I want to highlight the significance of the direction here because as we notice, episode two within the narrative is all going to be driven on by the thought of the return. You'll notice throughout your reading of chapter one, it's constant with turn, return, turn, turn, return, turn, return. It's marked by the return. So here we grasp the significance of the leaving. The story of Ruth begins with this journey um, away from the land of Bethlehem. Now, what is that so significant as the story of God's faithfulness is beginning to be told through a man of Bethlehem in Judah? So this, the story breaks out. There is, we're in difficult providential days with the judges. There is a famine upon the land that God has given us because of our recklessness and breaking of the covenant. And the story is beginning to be told by a man of Bethlehem. Now, why is that so significant? Well, if I could draw your attention to the etymology of the term Bethlehem. Maybe some of you have read this story before or you have heard of this before, but the point is that stands out why this story is being told of a man from Bethlehem is that Bethlehem means house of bread. So you recall, there's a famine and it will steal your grain. A man of Bethlehem, that is a man of the house of bread is leaving the house of bread. I hope I'm not the only one rattled by that. Consider just for a brief moment the detail of the text here. Do you see the irony? In the land where God is to be with them, there is Bethlehem, the house of bread, and there is no bread in the house. Fullness has become famine. Why is it? Again, it's not far removed from our own experience. Nationally and individually, by this man's home, he, Elimelech, as he leads his family, he is suffering the effects of sin. If we could just step out for a moment, that that which is full is now empty, even by its own terminology, it is the house of bread. And we're leaving the house of bread because there's no bread in the house. Covenantally, we know why. They're disregarding the covenant. Put it together. One plus one equals two. And that is that sin steals what is full in every instance. Sin steals what is full. And it leaves behind, in its wake, emptiness 
and drought. That's the narrative point. This isn't just, hey, we've had some uh, bad weather lately. It's covenantally tied to disobedience. That's why he tells us when it's taking place. And he ties the famine to the first sentence. You know why this is happening, don't you? Be warned, reader. Sin steals what is full. Not sometimes, every time. And the fullness doesn't immediately return. There's a season of hurt and drought and emptiness. It's not the tumbleweed that comes and blows right out of town. Where it blows, it leaves a great effect. We cannot skip past the way the narrative is being set up to be read for its fullness. The irony continues, however, into the text. You notice the name of the man from Bethlehem. Again, perhaps now, at least in my case, I speak only for me and my wife. We named our children kind of on the principle, a name we would still call them and be pleased to call them for a long time. It's pretty straightforward. We like that name. I could probably see myself using it a thousand times a day. Then let's just call them that. In the Old Covenant, of course, and people groups and tribes and so on and so forth, you recognize there's much more richness to the etymology of a name. I don't even know what, what, what Owen means. I, I, I don't know that. And I've used it 10 million times a week. And I, I'm fully satisfied without knowing. But that's not the case here. Terms and the, and, the, and the way they function and, and, and their, their, their definition as they come together, these consonants with these cons- consonants function also as signs or statements, confessions, identity markers. You see that in Abraham moves to, or Abram to Abraham. You, you, you find the, the, these, these terms that, that, that serve a symbol, sign, function. And here, don't miss the irony also of the situation of this individual family living in the days of the judges. The name Elimelech, its etymology is simply this. If you, if you were in the Hebrew and you were to rip the consonants apart, you would find the consonants existing that say, my God is king. I don't know where it's sourced, if it was provided him, obviously at some point within, as a man of Judah, it was provided him from family. He was pronounced this. At the end of the book, we'll see yet another birth that gives rise to the redemptive story, and they'll speak a name upon it that fits the context and the service. So here, this man, Elimelech, received this name that belonged by confession to their family. Don't miss the irony of the man whose name is my God is king, is leaving the land of God's blessing. There's a question here that lingers regarding Elimelech. He right now is at the center of the story. It's Elimelech who stands center stage in the narrative to lead us and to guide us, to instruct us unto the meaning of the narrative. Elimelech stands in the center so far. And yet we're unclear why Elimelech is making this choice, or or rather we're not unclear why 
we're struggling with um, perhaps the appropriateness of the choice. There's nothing that surrounds the narrative that judges Elimelech. And again, many of us would surely want to back away from saying, no, circumstance, the snowball that is about to roll down the hill will prove out he was wrong. And we don't choose to give, I hope, one another advice that way either. Where, oh, you had a flat tire. Well, let me tell you, I noticed last week the way you, we would shy away from that kind of counsel, I hope. And so to here, we recognize Elimelech is making a decision for his family. And we're unclear of the judgment on this decision to leave Bethlehem for Moab. But it's significant. Either way, we think of it twofold. Number one, either perhaps as we're reading into the text now, perhaps one, uh, Elimelech is making a faith-based decision to care and provide for his family. He recognizes there's no food, there's no grain, there's no provision. I'm the head of my family. I need to then provide for them. I'm going to lead them to a place of provision. I think many of us, if not all of us who are married, have come to that point in our lives where we made certain decisions like that. Where we're we're, we're at least moved to make decisions either to stay or to go based upon some of those same circumstances that surround us. I need to provide for my family. So I need to... So, but yet, that's not a great decision either on Elimelech's uh, decision-making. One, it's, it's not a great situation. Number two, so maybe he's making it in faith. And secondly, we could only draw out, perhaps, he's not making it faithfully. He doesn't believe, in other words, he doesn't believe that God is going to keep his covenant and revisit his people. Maybe God has broken the covenant. He's absolved it. Because we have broken it. The covenant, in other words, functionally no longer exists. So what's barren before me is probably the end game result of what we've done with the covenant. And I'm going to leave. Either way, however we frame a limelech, it's a sad situation. Because either he is confused about the nature of God's faithfulness, Or he is making a decision because of sin that abounds in Judah. And he needs a search for plenty elsewhere. Either way is a sad indictment on Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's moving this man, Elimelech, to take his family to Moab. The third piece of the dark irony. So it is, secondly, my God is king. Certainly seems to be a bit of dark irony upon the man Elimelech who is leading the land of provision from his God. And that's my third piece of irony from the text is this, the direction of Moab. And we want to highlight the considering the direction of the narrative because again, episode two is all about the return. So there's a direction here that is being noted to every Israelite who would have been reading this text. Every member of the church of the Old Covenant would read this text and they would get the gag reflex going. It would, in, 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 broad, in kind of crass terms, trip their puker to read of going to Moab. 
So it isn't only that he is leaving Israel, the house of bread, but he is going to Moab? Why is this such a hard thing to read? I know for you three historical reasons why this would have been difficult. And yet, who emerges? Ruth, and I'm going to steal the highlight. She is a Moabite. But why would this movement to Moab be so hard to receive for a man like Elimelech? Number one, Moab denied Israel passage through their territory on Israel's way out of Egypt to Canaan. This is recorded for you in Numbers 22 through 24. They run into Moab, and they are not friendly to Israel. Fast forward here to the conquest situation in the days of the judges, and the Israelites had no taste for Moab. Secondly, the Moabite women, it is recorded with this perspective out of Numbers 25 and so forth as you move forward throughout the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. It is, it is pictured that the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men during this time When there wasn't clear passage, the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men. And as a sanction upon Israel in the breaking of this covenant and this disobedience, the punishment that God brought to Israel was that 24,000 died. So here you come out of redemption. You come from Egypt and you're making your way to Canaan. And this, this... this nation stops you. you. You don't have passage here. No, we, we just need to know. And then during this time, fornication sets in. And they receive a punishment of 24,000 die. There was not a great tender loving relationship between Israel and Moab. A third piece of the historical setting that gives rise to the heightened crisis in the book of Ruth, where a man whose God is king from the land of Judah in the house of bread seeks refuge in Moab, is that Moab recently, within the cycle of the Judges, that is, if you were to read Judges 3, which we don't know exactly when Ruth is taking place in which cycle of the Judges, but if you were to read Judges 3, you'll find Moab oppressing Israel for 18 years. So not only do they deny them passage, bring severe punishment upon them with the death of 24,000 coming out of Egypt, and then here they experience Moabite oppression for 18 years. So we find the man of Bethlehem leaving the land of promise to find sanctuary in Moab. The accumulative effect of this short introduction, if I could read the cumulative effect, hopefully it will fall upon you and to receive somewhat in measure of the introduction that we are given of the bad, bad situation in Israel. And the confusion that sets in for Elimelech is best as we could say, a sense of confusion. We don't know if it was good or bad, just it is either way, a bad situation. And that is this. The house of bread. Is being left. By the man whose God is king. 
in search of refuge and salvation from a land greatly despised. This doesn't seem to be the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant. As I draw your attention to this, and I think of Elimelech in this scenario, again, because we're not exactly keen on, on, on how Elimelech is viewing the flight from the land of promise and provision to find promise and provision in a land despised. We're just uncertain on his two options. I would suggest this in our day, in our context right now. I ask you, to whom do the people of God turn? Considering Elimelech and his family. And certainly other Israelites in the land. To whom do the people of God turn when Christ's church denies Christ's word? In the days when the judges ruled, what does Elimelech do? What does the church of Christ do? When no longer do we declare, thus saith the Lord, we exchange it with thus saith the celebrity. What does the church do? When the church affirms open sin, redefines sin altogether, whom do the people of God go? Here is Elimelech. To whom did he turn? What discussion did he have? When the church collectively denies godly discipline, just denies it. Discipline? What is discipline? What, do you, what does that even mean? Let us live in open lawlessness, Judges says. No, when the church denies godly discipline, denies sacrament, rightly administered and protected, the priests. When the church fails to call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, seek him out. To whom does the individual believer turn? To whom do the people of God go? When the church denies word, sacrament, discipline, and prayer. So I, I answer it with this question, or I guess, yes, a follow-up question. I provide an answer to a question with a question, and that is, how is the church of Christ to be nourished and sanctified? How are we together, the people of God, in this covenant, how are we nourished and cared for? That is, by godly men who have been provided the stewardship of the word, sacrament, prayer, and discipline. When these are rightly ordered under the headship of Christ, the church is nourished. When these things are denied and neglected, the church is wounded. Now, as I draw a little bit more narrowly upon the national, from the national side of the crisis, where 
in the days of the judges, there is a famine everywhere. And we see this individual man whose God is king, Elimelech, leaving. The crisis begins to narrow now a little bit more for the last few moments of our time together. It zeroes in on the plight of this individual family now built upon the decision that Elimelech made. Now, again, I'm not suggesting to you that it's cause and effect, that, that what we're about to read is because Elimelech, it just, I, we don't have that kind of information. We do well to just withhold judgment. Nonetheless, we do watch the situation get worse for Elimelech and his family in this crisis. What is the crisis? If I could read for you, notice again verse 1. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And everyone's like, no! And then we keep reading as we're instructed and guided by the narrator to receive and reap the benefits of this tragedy and grasp what's at stake. He and his wife and his two sons went with him. They moved as a family together. The name of the man was, my God is king. And the name of his wife is Naomi. Pleasant. The name of his two sons, Malon and Kilian, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. They're from the house of bread. They've left it in Judah. They went to the country of Moab. Do you see how he's he's peppering you with this idea of direction? They, They were here in Bethlehem. They're from Bethlehem. They went to Moab. Now they went to Moab. So you just don't. Every time that there's a complaint that I repeat myself too much, just look and learn. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. That's the first strike to this narrative. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Killian died. The second strike in the narrative. It draws this conclusion to bring us up to speed what that means for the structure of the family. So the woman, uh, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Do you see how in a brief stroke of the pen, we move from verse 2 through verse 5. And what we should, maybe what we're expectant to read, is that this family, Elimelech, his two sons, and his wife, are heading down for a short period of time in the land of Moab to receive basic care and provisions. And what we're going to find out, especially after the marriage, is we're going to find out, we're probably going to read of a family that's thriving and growing. Little ones. Blessed unions. And we find out that instead of moving in this joyous trajectory, we find out that a family of four is now a family of one. See, if we read too fast, we'll just keep going. And we won't own it all, the tragedy that truly is Naomi's. Think of a traveling with your own family. You left full, Naomi says. 
and I have come back empty. A joyous event or occasion of leaving, and a tragedy strikes and you come back alone. By the end of this short text of verse 5, we could read and title the story. Perhaps it is now, instead of the book of Ruth, it is a story of three widows. We just saw a whole family, and now we see three widows. We saw a family of four go down, and now only a single member remains. Consider just a little bit further out is that without second or third generations to speak of, Elimelech's family teeters on the brink of extinction within Israel. Point number one of this tragedy going from bad to worse is simply that a family of four is now a family of one. The narrator wants us to glean this and glean that well. Naomi is in tragedy. But the tragedy doesn't stop there. As you notice, Naomi is where? Through the text, he, he labored to lead us to the conclusion of how bad the crisis is. They're where? They're not in Judah. They're in Moab when this occurred. That is, not only is Naomi alone, she is in a foreign land as a refugee. She is alone in a foreign land to grieve the loss of her husband and her two sons. There is no extended family in Moab for her. There is no national covenantal protections for her. She is alone. In historical terms, I highlight as we wind our time down, and I am, I am preparing to land. In historical terms, there are three insights we glean from just how dark Naomi's situation is simply at the end of verse 5. Think about verse 1. Again, maybe I'm reading into it, um, but but just see them maybe hopeful in their flight to Moab. As a family of four. short turnaround she is alone and she's in Moab three things stand out number one Naomi now stands barren and she lacks provision and protection of a husband in a male dominated society you know, I, I uh, even now instruct my son, and of course it's tongue-in-cheek, but he takes it as a real feat of honor. And when I leave, I remind him that he now is the man of the house. He is seven. But as we prep, prepare, disciple, train, instruct, he takes it as like, you know, whoever's passing through this door is passing through me. And it might be like this. Um, But in his mind, that is, if he were indeed older, I would expect him to care for Adri. You would expect that as well of your own. Do you look after your mother? My father will expect that of me. I look after my mother. 
she lacks any provision and protection in a male-dominated society. Secondly, she has no trade or skill that we're told of in the text whatsoever. And her actions later will bear that out when she has Ruth go into the fields. Naomi has no trade or skill with which to support herself. Things are bad. She is in Moab without a man in a male-dominated society with no skill and no trade to support herself with. And the Moabites were not loving on the situation of the Israelites and providing as much as they could. Thirdly, and this is perhaps worse yet, being aged, as she indicates to us throughout the narrative in our next section of the return, being aged and childless means that she faces her declining years. And maybe some of us younger folks don't understand the significance of those emotions and might not grasp the significance of those feelings for older folks. But she faces her declining years with no children now who will look in on her, care for her, provide for her. And can we humanize it so much? I know we tend not to do that with Scripture. But to hug her, simple things. And she has no one to grasp onto to bring over provisions. She is utterly alone. I summarize it this way with this author's comment, just to hopefully convince you of this truth as we look toward the return in episode two. And that is, Naomi was obviously and understandably devastated on several fronts. He writes, do not miss the desperation of these circumstances with which the book of Ruth confronts its readers at the very beginning. What is the conclusion to episode one as we wind down our time this morning? And here I draw to conclusion. There isn't something that the author is necessarily saying to us at this point. We're not necessarily at the crossroads in the story yet where the decision needs to be made. We see very clearly that sin destroys and brings famine and drought. That's obvious. And he led us down that pathway up front to expect nothing less. But now the narrator leads us to ask a confrontational question, not necessarily yet provide an answer. And this is the question that we ask as readers of Naomi. At this moment, at the end of verse 5 when she's alone, and Elimelech is dead. As intrigued readers, we ask, will Naomi still affirm that my God is king? When my God is king is dead, and she is in a foreign an alien land. What's to become of Naomi? 
And then I ask you, in coordination with the narrator, this is why he's asking the question of Naomi. So that he can ask you a similar question. Will you? In the most difficult life situation, perhaps you're experiencing some of that now. I don't know. In the most difficult life situation, as difficult as life and death itself, will you affirm? Can you affirm? My God is King. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your faith to increase and abound in our hearts.